turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6, uh, verses uh, 1 through 13, which happens to be the whole chapter. And it begins by saying, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Now, I've been telling you for several weeks, as we have considered the early chapters of Isaiah, that the first five chapters or so are an overview or a prelude. Uh, We might, if we were publishing a book today, call it the prologue. How many of you read the prologues to books? Oh, good. (laughs) Authors put them there for a reason. And it's sort of the prologue to the book so that uh, we kind of get a glimpse of all that Isaiah is going to be saying. And after this chapter, we launch right into uh, King Ahaz and trouble uh, with Judah coming uh, into a state of war. But Isaiah chapter 6 represents the call of Isaiah, and this is his official beginning. After the fifth chapter, we kind of dial the clock back a little bit. We don't know exactly what year this was. Um, In fact, it's impossible to tell exactly what year, but somewhere in the 730, 739 uh, before Christ. Um, Isaiah has this experience as uh, King Uzziah comes to the end of his lifetime. And Uzziah has been a good king. He has done well. He has honored the Lord. And under his leadership, uh, Judah has done well and has experienced a great deal of prosperity and blessing. And so the nation has been on good footing and has uh, you know, been coming along in a great way. The economy's good. Uh, people have jobs. Um, they see an expansion of their borders. They, they've uh, experienced a good time. And we all like that. You know, we like to have uh, times of peace and times of economic prosperity. And, uh, you know, we enjoy that kind of, uh, of living. And so that's been the condition that uh, has gone on up until this time. But as Uzziah comes to the end of his life, the people of Judah are looking at the circumstances and saying, what's going to follow? And what follows uh, is Ahaz. And Ahaz is not a good king. And uh, he is one to continue to make foreign alliances. And he is starting to lead the people uh, into troublesome times. And the people are wondering, how is all of this going to turn out? Uh, What's going to happen with us as the future begins to unfold? Isaiah, I think, is apparently among them. 
even though he is a man who, from all appearances, loves the Lord, is serving the Lord, nonetheless, he has his hope uh, built around uh, the, the human leadership. He, too, is dismayed at the death of Uzziah. And I think this is in the backdrop of this verse 1 as we step into this event that Isaiah is perhaps in prayer, perhaps he is at the temple, the, the physical material temple, um, perhaps he's just at his home or out in the field somewhere and he's pondering the state of Judah and he's wondering about his future. And the future of the nation. And he says, in the, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. You know, we all need to be reminded from time to time that God is on the throne. That all human government rises and falls according to his sovereign purposes. And that we need not be afraid of human government or of the leadership that we get. Uh, I remember one person saying a long time ago, we get the leadership we deserve. Uh, that's probably true. But our hope and our trust is not in human leadership. And we need to be reminded of this. And it's in this kind of musing, wondering, that Isaiah suddenly has a vision of the Lord God Almighty sitting on the throne. He's being reminded that God is the one who's in charge of things. That God is the one who reigns supremely. He is lofty and exalted. And the train of his robe fills uh, the, the temple or the tabernacle. Now, this has led people to think that Isaiah was probably in the physical temple. But we don't know that. Isaiah may be seeing a vista of the heavenly temple and of the heavenly altar. And what he sees is that God is high and lifted up and that this uh, dazzling vision that he sees of the Lord is of the king sitting high upon the throne and his robes flow out and fill the temple. Um, he is full of majesty and glory. And he says, Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is the only time in the Bible that seraphim are mentioned. And they're these interesting creatures that have three pairs of wings. And the scripture says, with two they cover their face. Signifying that 
um, God is so holy and so worthy that they cannot look upon Him. And with two they cover their feet, um, signifying that they are covering the humble parts of their body. And with two they are hovering in flight, ready to do His bidding. The seraphim are the flaming ones. Uh, that's in essence what their name means. They're the, they're the flaming ones. And they are surrounding the throne of God. And one calls out to another and says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. You know, the word holy, in the New Testament, we are called saints. Many people have trouble with that word. <laughs> Some groups, such as uh, the Roman Catholic Church, uh, canonizes certain people that they think have led exemplary lives, and they are called saints. And, and venerated because of the life they have lived. They don't look at everyone as a saint. Others uh, look at saints and feel like, well, I'm not worthy to be called a saint. But in fact, the scripture calls all of us saints who know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And the claim that we are saints has most importantly to do with the fact that we are separated unto God. We belong to Him. We have been sprinkled clean with the blood of Christ. We have been prepared as vessels for His service. And so the, the word saint means that we are separate from and uh, so the scripture says we're strangers and aliens upon this earth. We are separated unto God. We're a peculiar people. Sometimes we act peculiar, but, but we are a peculiar people. We are not like unbelievers around us. We have, we have a different value system. We have a different uh, creed of honor. We have a different Lord. We serve the Holy One of Israel. And so we're saints in the sense that we're set apart. But as we're set apart and sprinkled with the blood, we are also made righteous. And that is the process of sanctification which the Holy Spirit begins to work out in our lives. That we will reflect the glory and the character of God. So that our holiness, our sainthood will be not only separated unto, but made like unto. Now, I say that because the word in its essence means to be separated from. For us, it means to be separated from the world and consecrated to God. But when the word is applied to God, holy, 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 
It means that God is unlike His creation. That He is totally other. That He is not like we are. Yes, we're made in His image. But He is separated from the creation as the one, the Creator, who reigns majestically above it all. And furthermore, He is also morally and righteously pure in its most infinite sense. So our God is a holy God, holy other than we are, and filled with righteousness and moral purity. And it says that the whole earth is filled with His glory. It reflects the glory and the majesty of God. It's amazing to me that even after the fall, which plunged the entire world into uh, bondage under the power of sin, the glory of God is still reflected. It still has the vestige of His creative power. You, you can't look at nature. You can't look at uh, seas and, and mountains and flowers and uh, animals and all kinds of things that God has made without recognizing the glory of the Lord. He is truly exalted. The whole earth speaks of God, even in its fallen condition. Can you imagine how it what was? Before the fall, can you imagine the glorious beauty and majesty of the world reflecting God before anything marred the creation? And all of the earth is full of His glory. And as He speaks, the foundations of the thresholds tremble at the voice of Him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Isaiah has this amazing vision of God. And as he realizes that he is in the presence of God, that he has seen God, he is reminded that no man can see me and live. And he falls on his face, as it were, and says, Woe is me, for I am ruined. The word uh, ruin means to be cut off and to perish. Isaiah fully expects in this revelation of the glory of God that he is going to die from the very vision of seeing the Lord as he has seen him. You know, we... And not necessarily un, uh, inappropriately, because Jesus calls us his friends. But it is often easy for us who have been brought near by the blood of the Lamb and drawn into his presence to become familiar with God 
perhaps overmuch to look at friendship with Jesus like we would look at friendship with one another. And while are, he also is separate from us. And it behooves us to remember the glory of God and the majesty of God. I heard a story of one of the professors at Crown, now Crown College. In those days, it was St. Paul Bible College. Who, whenever he was asked uh, impromptu to pray, for example, so and so, would you lead us in prayer for the blessing of our food and whatever like that? That he would stand, and there would be this long awkward silence and it was customary with him to just pause what seemed like an inordinate amount of time before he would begin to pray and it of course prompted questions and his answer was when I stand to pray I need to remember in whose presence I stand. I need to take a moment to bring into perspective that I am about to speak to Almighty God and that the only way I can do that is by the blood of His Son that has been sprinkled in the heavenly altar. That does not negate impromptu praying. Nehemiah is famous for his quick knee-jerk prayers uh, followed by activity. Uh, he turns to God and then he takes, uh, takes action. And so uh, we have to keep all of these things in balance. And perhaps that professor had things a little out of balance. But nonetheless, it's a good anecdote to remember that we're coming into the presence of a holy God. And as Isaiah recognizes that he is in the presence of God, his initial reaction is, I am ruined. I have seen God and I'm going to die. I am ruined. And then he recognizes his sin. He says, For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I think until this moment, and I don't think it's stretching it too far to say that Isaiah has thought of himself as doing pretty well. He is one who loves God. He is one who has endeavored to keep the commandments. He is one who has tried to be obedient in every way that he knows. And 
when we look around and compare ourselves with other people that we know, we may think well of ourselves more or less. I'm not like they are. I'm a little better than they are. I don't do the things they do. I don't sell drugs. I'm not a drunkard. Uh, On the list could go. As we compare ourselves with ourselves. But the scripture warns us about that. When we compare ourselves with ourselves, we are in serious error. Because the only one with whom we have a right to compare ourselves is God himself. You are therefore to be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect, Jesus says as he concludes his Sermon on the Mount. And you might ask, how is that possible? And the answer is, it isn't. Not in the absolute sense. But when God looks at sin, He looks at it in the absolute sense. It is not a grade on the curve or an average. How are you doing compared to your fellows? It is how are you doing compared to the Lord? That's the question. And that's what Isaiah realized. That no matter how he saw himself, as he had this vision of God and saw his exalted glory and his moral purity, that he was like the people around him. And that like they, he had unclean lips. Jesus says the things that come out of a man are the things that are born in his heart. And what Isaiah is recognizing is his heart is defective. It is sinful and out of his being has come those things which are defiled before the Lord. And it doesn't matter what other people are doing or how they're living or how they're behaving. That's irrespective of where you stand with God. And that's what Isaiah is seeing. I'm in God's presence and I realize maybe for the first time, oh yes, I'm a sinner, I know I'm a sinner. We all know that, right? We all recognize that, right? Uh, It's a part of our theological foundation. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all know that. Up here, intellectually but have we grasped in the presence of God how that sin separates us from him brings us under his judgment puts us in a position where we deserve the punishment that everyone deserves And that we belong in a place of adversity with God. Not of 
harmony and communion. And then he says, one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. Remember, these are the flaming ones. And with tongs, he reached into the altar, the the fire of the altar, and took a coal and placed it in his hand. And he came and he touched Isaiah's lips. And this touching of his lips signified that he was purifying his life. That he was cleansing him. He touched my mouth and with it he said, Behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. This is not simply Hebrew parallelism where it's saying exactly the same thing twice. He's saying, first of all, your iniquity is taken away. The iniquity is the guilt, the shame of sin. It really is iniquity that brings us emotional separation from God. That brings the barrier of fellowship with God. We feel shame. We feel guilt. Once we have seen our sin, we feel the shame and the guilt of it. And we want to turn away from God. We want to to look away. We don't want Him to look at us. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Uh, We want to recede back into the shadows so that we're not exposed. So, He says, your iniquity is taken away and your sin... The actual breaking transgression of the law, your sin, is forgiven. Our iniquity can be removed because our sin can be forgiven. When God declares us righteous in the person of Jesus Christ, for He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And when God brings us into a place of pure and holy standing, because Jesus has taken our place and shed His blood and cleansed us so that our sin is no longer held against us, That decree that was written against us has been nailed to the cross, Paul says in Colossians. It's been nailed to the cross and we have been freed from it. You know, in crucifixion they would nail at the top of the cross the crimes for which a person was being crucified. The only thing they could say about Jesus is he says he is the king of the Jews. But for us, there could be a long list. But that has been taken out of the way. It has been removed because Jesus has borne it Himself. And our sin is forgiven. 
And because our sin is forgiven, our guilt and our shame can be removed. Friends, listen to the word of the Lord this morning. If you have been forgiven your sin, release your shame and your guilt. So many people come to the Lord and find forgiveness in Him, but they cannot forgive themselves. And so they continue to bear their shame as if they had not been cleansed. That is an insult to Christ. Not to compound your frustration, but it is. He has removed your sin. And He has taken away your guilt and your shame. Lay it all aside. Because you notice what happens next. As we move into Isaiah's commission, his call, we find that now instead of terror gripping his heart, Isaiah is moving into a relationship with God. He is moving into, may I say, a partnership. It's not a 50-50 partnership. God is in charge. But it is a relationship, a a family, a, a, a communion, a fellowship. Because the barrier has been removed. Isaiah has experienced amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch. Like me. Isaiah has experienced that. And so, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go (coughs) for us? John Calvin said that we err earlier in the chapter when we try to make the, the, the thrice holy God into the Trinity. He says we expose ourselves to ignorance before those uh, naysayers who would deny the Trinity. And perhaps he is right that holy, holy, holy is simply ascribing to God the other holiness, separateness, glory, and and moral purity of His majesty. But here, there is the triune God, who says, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? This is not the seraphim, God is not looking for colleagues in the heavenly host. He makes his own decisions. He executes his own commands. They are there to do his bidding. 
and all of a sudden we are confronted with the reality that our God is a triune God. It is a doctrine that is more completely perfected in the New Testament, but it is consistently <clears throat> proclaimed throughout the Old Testament in terms like this. Even in the, in the Shema, where the Scripture says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our Lord is one God's Elohim. It's plural. How strange. The Lord our Lord is one God's. Because He is a triune God. And His Spirit is a person. And His Son is a person. Separate but yet the same. In ways that are mysteries we cannot fathom. Here the triune God says, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah now has a whole different relationship with God. He says, here am I, send me, I will go. And God says to him, go and speak this message, this word to the people. And then, to be honest with you, I find the next verses a little bit discouraging. Because they focus, after announcing the message, they focus on the result, the response. Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and return and be healed. God has already pronounced judgment upon Judah. I don't know if you're familiar with the, the sermon, Payday Someday. But in that profound message, there is quoted the passage that the one who stiffens his neck being often reproved shall suddenly be cut off <clears throat> without remedy. The Holy Spirit of God will not always strive. It is not possible to come to God without the, the drawing and, and the eye-opening power of the Holy Spirit. It is not possible to come to repentance without the gift and ministry of repentance by the Holy Spirit. And God has pronounced judgment upon Judah. She has sinned away her day of grace. Judgment is inevitable. There are opportunities for some people who will listen to turn from their wicked ways and seek the Lord. And we'll find out at the end of the chapter that some do that. But the vast majority have rebelled against God. Their fate is sealed. Judah is on the downward slide and is headed toward captivity. 
Then I said, Lord, how long shall I preach this message? And he answered and said, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant. Houses are without people and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. <clears throat> you know what happened to many of the of the special people and the princes of Judah, they were carried off to captivity to Babylon as a part of the <laughs> uh, moving around of, of that uh, Babylonian idea of weakening the home nation. The Lord has removed men far away, and forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. You know, sometimes I have to be honest. I wonder if we're living in days like Isaiah. We are told that the church in America is declining. Statistics bear it out. There are only a couple of denominations that are showing any growth at all. But most denominations are experiencing a national birth rate that is going faster than the conversion rate of those denominations. That simply means that the net growth is in the negative and that in due season we will be a far more godless nation than we are now. And I wonder sometimes as I preach, not to this audience, but as we speak the word, if people's hearts have not already become hardened to the point that penetrating the thickness of their heart and mind is almost impossible. Apart from the Spirit of God, it is impossible. Can you imagine being Isaiah, being given a message, and God's word to him is, go and speak this message to the people. And by the way, they're not going to pay any attention to you. You're going to spend your whole life preaching and people are not going to respond. In fact, they're going to become more hardened and more obstinate than they've ever been. They're going to turn away until they finally go into exile. Your message is a message of judgment and warning, but they're not going to heed it. Jeremiah had a similar responsibility and there came a point in his ministry where he was ready to give up. He was tired of the frustration of speaking and preaching without any response or results. And he said, I tried to shut up, but there was a fire welling up in my bones and I couldn't keep silent. And I wanted God to take this burden off of me. Because it was wearing me out. Here's Isaiah's message. There's not much good news. But you know what? There is good news. There's a remnant. 
God is going to preserve a remnant that will be faithful to him. And out of that remnant, he will restore Israel. And you know, the amazing thing is that today, 2,700 years later, Israel is still living and breathing and occupying the Holy Land. And God's promises have not been completed and he will fulfill them. And besides Israel, God has opened a way in the promise of Abraham. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so the promise of God to Abraham has been fulfilled through the coming of Christ in the birth of the church. And we have been grafted into that vine, that olive tree that belongs to the Lord, the planting of the Lord. And we have a glorious future. And in spite of the dismal message, and the message for today is, they will be crying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. They will be basking in their pleasures. They will be going their own way. But some will heed the message. Some will hear. We don't know who they are. So keep preaching. Keep testifying. Keep sharing. We don't know when that person will turn to Christ that you've been witnessing to or praying for for decades. And so Isaiah, go and give this message. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it. And it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it's felled. There will be a stump that remains and the holy seed, the seed of a new Israel, is its stump. I will not utterly destroy this people because they are my people and I have made a future for them. There's so much to learn from Isaiah. J.A. Motyer, a professor of Old Testament from Australia, uh, writes this in the conclusion, his conclusion to chapter 6. I want to read this to you because I thought it was very succinct and significant. As well as giving us an awesome view of God, this chapter provides us with a succinct portrait of his servant Isaiah. He was a man with a big vision, a deep awareness of his own sinfulness. A profound experience of the grace of God. And a willingness to spend and be spent in His service, whatever the cost. You know, you can never be effective in sharing the message of Christ until you have a big vision of who the Lord is. 
until you have a deep awareness of your own sinfulness. That's what keeps you from holding people aloof and being approachable. A deep awareness of your own sinfulness. There is no one out there who is worse than I am. We're all in the same boat. And I have no reason or excuse for pride. And a profound sense of God's grace that He has forgiven, removed my iniquity, and forgiven my sin. Praise be to His holy name. Some have described witnessing as one beggar telling another where they found bread. Friends, that's our, that's our message. We have found bread. We have found the living bread and the living water. We have found the source. And all others are just like us. And they're just as hungry and just as thirsty. And if we have a profound experience of God's grace, and then we're willing to spend and be spent in His service, whatever the cost, God will bless that work and that ministry. Where are you this morning? In Isaiah's testimony. Have you seen the Lord? Maybe not quite in the same way, but have you beheld Him? Have you come to an understanding of your depravity? Have you experienced the glory of His grace? Are you filled with His love and with His goodness for others? Because you have found the source of life and come back to fellowship with God. May the Lord give us more Isaiahs. May you be one of them for His glory. Thank you, Father, for speaking to us from Your Word. Lord, you are holy, holy, holy. You are exalted in the heavens, far above creation. Yet you have come down to us in Jesus. And you have removed our iniquity and forgiven our sin. And cleansed us that we might be restored to fellowship with you. We praise you, Lord, for that glorious message and that experience that we have had in redemption. In Jesus' name, amen.